Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have Mags Skrnowska. Mags, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. We want to hear all that you have to share about mining and the rest of Bitcoin. Uh, Mags is an advisor at PRTI. So Mags, why don't you start by telling us what is PRTI and how did you get there? Sure. They're a pretty awesome company. I know everybody tends to focus on Bitcoin and energy use and carbon, and that's the sexy thing. But what they do is actually landfill diversion. So looking at, for example, the U.S., there's a tire thrown out for every person every year, not to mention all the tires that are in landfills that are just accumulating. And we used to use them for like soccer fields and playgrounds, but they actually give off noxious compounds. So we've stopped using that. So there really is no solution for tires. Um, what PRTI does is they figured out uh, and they've been working on a site since 2016 and they take the waste tires, put them in vertical reactors, heat them up until they thermally decompose into an oil that can be put in a diesel generator into a synthetic gas that can be burned like methane. Um, steel, 25% of the tire is steel, so it can be recycled and sold for scrap. And then there's a black carbon that can be used like coal for BTU value. So it's kind of like an energy company, but all those energy components can be used to mine Bitcoin, which they do. Um, and I think it's a pretty exciting company because it's a different kind of environmental problem that we found a solution for. And we can help support building this infrastructure, this waste management infrastructure through Bitcoin mining because we both get paid to take in waste tires because there's something called a tipping fee when you throw out landfill waste. And we you know, get paid either for the energy projects. So during a bear market, if it makes more sense to sell the energy, we, we would do that. But also, you know, we mine Bitcoin. So I think it's a pretty awesome story. And um, I actually worked in public policy for a decade mostly low carbon economic transition. And I worked with uh, heavy industry stakeholders like steel and cement that they would take wastes in um, versus using coal or coked and it would actually reduce their GHG emissions. So, so that's kind of like how I came to be at this nexus of waste management and, and Bitcoin mining. <laughs> so t tell us about your experience in public policy. Uh, now I understand you were working <laughs> on the uh, Quadriga bankruptcy, uh, but Still am. Also, <laughs> still are. So I know you're working um, on the bankruptcy side, but what is your what is the extent of your public policy experience? Yeah, so I worked in decade in um, government in Canada, largely spanning low carbon economic transition. So that really was, you know, helping support cap and trade, which is kind of like the stick, the negative uh, externality. And I I tended to work more on the carrot, which is the enabling policy. So if we have a bunch of funds coming in from cap and trade, how can we reinvest it into the economy, into our small businesses, into heavy industry, into technologies like energy efficiency or fuel switching to reduce the footprint of heavy industry? So a lot of that was around, you know, economic development and innovation the whole like job creation, which is kind of what we're doing, you know, in the, in the Bitcoin mining space, um, but really understanding kind of like the pushes and pulls of a company that's a multinational that lives in Canada, but would very easily just exit uh, and go per perhaps into Brazil and or, or 
instead of expanding in Ontario, expand in, in a sister plant in Brazil because it makes much more economic sense. Now, heavy industry is a little bit more stuck in that they can't move a cement plant or a steel plant because they have very expensive pieces of infrastructure that cost tens of millions of dollars, but maybe they just don't decide to upgrade it because the economic situation is not as good. Miners are like a whole beast on their own because you can just pick up, you know, the miners units like behind me, you know, they're pretty mobile. Uh, and, you, and, and that's the most expensive piece of infrastructure. So you can set up a whole new facility, you know, halfway around the world. Um, if, if a country makes it that it's just not economic to continue to operate. So let's just get right into Bitcoin mining and this energy arbitrage uh, phenomenon that you're a part of. So, you know, we just had a guest, a couple guests on to talk about the mining project in Virunga National Park. It's very exciting. I see that you've covered it as well. Um, we we want to know your thoughts on that project in particular, but then take that to the next level. And on the global scale, where do you see Bitcoin coming in, in, let's just say the, a more passive hydroelectric way or geothermal, these ways that are low impact and can bring promise to areas that didn't previously have it. I'm obsessed with Virunga because it is such a good news story. And a lot of us have been kind of focusing on what's happening in Texas, right? So we're co-locating with renewables, supporting renewables, but like Virunga is exactly the kind of good news story that we really want to see because it's, you know, the developed world where people don't even have energy infrastructure to turn on lights in their homes. And Bitcoin mining is not just, you know, in Texas helping support renewables. It's helping support renewables in places that don't even have any access to generation. And it's not just Virunga in the Congo, but other parts of Africa where, for example, gridless compute is doing the same thing, which is to locate, um, create a predictable revenue stream for that renewable generation. I mean, it's happening in Texas as well for nuclear or renewables, but it, what it is, is is that predictable revenue stream that more investment can come in because it's an anchored tenant. And now Bitcoin mining is pretty cool because it's not just, you know, it's a customer of first resort. Like they always want to be using power, but it's a customer of last resort where like nobody is around. They will take that power. Um, and, 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 and so it, it can be there as either kind of like the first primary species to populate and set up the needed infrastructure um, or or just, you know, but at the same time, it can help create, you know, optimize grid resources through flexible demand response. If there's just too much power drain, there's a load balancing kind of aspect that it can do. So it just plays such an important role. And I think increasingly, you know, governments are starting to understand that in the U.S., but I think it's something special when we're seeing it actually subsidize that very needed infrastructure in places like Africa. And we do agree with you that it is special. There's something special about the way that Bitcoin can help these remote communities in particular that don't have otherwise the power generation. So it's really building from the ground up um, in a place that just didn't have that access before led by, like you say, the, f the first resort user in this yeah. case, which, be, which would be Bitcoin mining. So yeah. where, where else in the world are you excited about this in particular? It could be so, Africa or think, elsewhere. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the Africa story hits home because uh, like it's park conservation. It's all the good news stories. Like we're, we're preserving gorillas, right? We're uh, keeping the porch, poaches away by, by helping uh, subsidize, you know, park staff resources. But, but it, it happens like in our very own backyard. So for example, in Canada, um, there's a lot, because Canada is so big, there's a lot of unconnected communities and they tend to be first nations communities, you know, um, on reserve where we never built out that, uh, transmission distribution infrastructure because it's just too costly there's just too much land to do that up north and these communities tend to be pretty disenfranchised they don't they have very low um uh, annual salaries and they don't have access to energy so what the government does is they ship in um diesel fuel which is expensive but also not great environmentally and the taxpayers are subsidizing it and honestly, I see that as an opportunity because I have talked to some First Nations in Canada that are starting to explore the potential for building out, you know, energy infrastructure at their own reserve, perhaps even recycling heat to grow vegetables. Like they, they think, you know, that could be the best case scenario because they also don't have access to fresh fruits and veggies because up north they have to truck everything in. I've seen some of the prices of like fruits. It's like $10 an apple. It's insane. It's a little bit subsidized again by government. But, you know, being able to take that heat and, and have this beautiful ecosystem. So I think, you know, near and dear to us, it's, it's, it could be a solution in terms of supporting that infrastructure, even within Canada, not just Africa, you know, not just Texas, where they're building massive amounts of solar. I think um, we're so used to, as a government, like, how do we fund public infrastructure where there's two pockets, right? There's the the ratepayer pocket, which is those that use the energy system that pay for the energy system. And then there's the taxpayer pocket, which is all the taxes come in and help build out the infrastructure, whether that is food infrastructure, uh, that's not public, you know, private, whether that's energy infrastructure, water, whatever, it's always been kind of the taxpayers waste management. So now there is this third pocket that's based on this elegant system of economics, that is actually supporting it, not just out of the goodness of the heart, because it makes economic sense. I think that's what's kind of magical about Bitcoin mining. Really quickly, are there any projects that you can point people toward uh, for the First Nations population in Canada and any potential energy uh, projects there? There's nothing that I'm aware that is quite significantly. I know there's a gentleman still... Stillwater, I think BTC. That's uh, that is of Métis descent. That's been looking at it within his First Nations community, or maybe potentially even using uh, landfill gas. It's something, especially with the First Nations, it does take a little bit extra time to kind of. It's they have their own kind of governance system. Um, obviously, you have to also find uh, funding for that. But what's neat is like, I mean, for everybody that's like ESG investing. Investing in a First Nations project is covers the S element, like the social. Um, it's just something that will take a little bit more time. But it is happening in um, in the U.S. where there was a project Compass, I think, was involved with. Um, I can't remember the, the 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 Aboriginal band, but but it is happening there in the U.S. And I do expect to see it because, as the First Nations have told me. It's, you know, they're very much about self-sovereignty, self-sovereignty around their land, and they understand the self-sovereignty aspect of Bitcoin. So I think that's kind of exciting to me. Yeah, and it's our responsibility to cover these ideas that we find exciting, inspiring, and that support the use case for Bitcoin in multiple ways. See, as long as we explain Bitcoin 
from all these different utility perspectives, it bolsters the case for Bitcoin to continue to exist long into the future. So it's exciting just to cover the idea and hopefully hopefully we can bring even more attention to it. Um, for sure. So talk to us about your time at CoinKite. It was that your first... Um, was that your first Bitcoin company uh, uh, business development role? And how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I've done a bit of business development here and there, but that was very full on, you know, maxi Bitcoin company. Um, it is a little bit different sometimes. I mean, I did do business development when I helped launch the first Bitcoin fund in Canada uh, with 3IQ. But it, it was a little different because there it's like con concrete product, like a physical product that we're selling and we're launching new products like the Tap Signer and, and others and the new um, uh, MK4 uh, hardware wallet. So it was it was a little bit interesting. And also like it's a global audience versus a Canadian audience primarily for like the ETFs um, or sorry and, and Bitcoin funds. Uh, so so it, it was really neat because you do touch so many folks all around the world and, and you're in a place where you can kind of help educate too. So I reached out to a lot of, for example, foreign language YouTubers or, or content creators, whether that was in Africa, um, whether that was in Asian countries, uh, Spanish countries, noticing that there was a gap, you know, in, in the language, because most of the content tends to be in English, you know, like Ben BTC Sessions tends to do a fantastic job on tutorials, but it's really lacking in other um in other languages and, and just something as simple as sending, you know, products there and working with folks to develop materials in other languages can do quite a, a bit for Bitcoin in terms of, you know, it's not just selling your product, but just like the ideas of, of self-custody and, and creating more possibilities for folks to learn and then implement it on their own, which I think was a really cool role from that perspective. And I mean, like custody is kind of a near and dear part of my heart because like I said, you know, I am a victim of Quadriga, but also I'm, I sit as a bankruptcy inspector overseeing uh, the bankruptcy of Quadriga where, you know, 215 million, which now pales in comparison to FTX, but like we continue to see this, the importance of self-custody and being able to take that step and, you know, store some of your Bitcoin off offline in a wallet is so near and dear to my heart that just like perpetuating that, um, idea to help people take their funds off exchanges so they don't become victims uh it allowed me that and you can talk about quadrica as the main driver of that or is there anything else that really drives this passion uh which i hear from your voice to educate people about self-custody which is you know a very important message and one that we also put forth it it is. And I think too, it's like in that role, I got to see a lot of stories, really sad stories, whether it was businesses that ran out of runway because they lost funds on Quadriga or folks that, you know, were expecting to use this for school or for um, to support family, or they had really, like we always say, don't invest more than you're willing to lose, but people ultimately do invest too much and then they lose it. And there's a lot of sad stories. So it's about trying to not get to that point and trying to make sure that they don't lose everything that they couldn't lose. <laughs> so that's why it was important to me. But at the same time, I kind of, um, I really did miss mining. Mining kind of is kind of closer to my heart, if you would say, because I did spend this decade on public policy, trying to transition to a low carbon economy, seeing the frustration of governments 
not, you know, like shifting the goalposts and not doing anything because they were too afraid to spend money that's needed because they want to get reelected. So that's why I think Bitcoin mining is like, it's a little cooler to me because it's actually doing everything that I wanted to do through policy, but it's doing it on a market-based perspective. So, I mean, they're both interesting, but I think like mining is a little more interesting to me. So tell us, what are the projects that you're working on right now? What are you specifically focused on uh, with regards to Bitcoin mining? Yeah, so a little bit of consulting, but honestly, um, I've been really helping PRTI. Um, they've been fundraising for the next round to build up another site, um, trying to, you know, working with them to acquire miners, typical type type of, you know, setting up a mine, helping figure it out, maintaining an eye on what's happening in the mining space. Cause it has changed so much from a year ago, right. Between, um, Oh geez. I mean, the amount of money that miners were making then versus now they're just kind of struggling and bankruptcies left, right and center. Um, and so I think it's important to have someone, you know, that keeps an eye on that. Um, but also I've been doing a little bit of advocacy too, right. I'm involved. Um, Canada has their own, mining uh, coalition and i don't know if you've been following but but canada's turned very hostile against miners about five different provinces now have either moratoriums or kind of like bans or have um they've reduced allocations they're saying no you, you can't get connected for the next two years and and that's just within the last i don't know six months kind of that stance has taken in most most of them happen kind of november december um and then also on the federal level there's a, a uh, they're they're doing some very unfavorable tax changes that could increase costs significantly based on how miners are treated. They can't uh, expense something that they used to be able to. Um, and so, yeah, it's not a good place. And we're seeing hash rate leave Canada or at least hash rate grow in other parts because um, Canadian companies are either thinking uh, we're not going to expand here like we thought we could or we're just going to go elsewhere so it's kind of a sad sad to see because we had two billion dollars worth of investment in canada so far and another two billion was coming by 2025 and another 1500 jobs were coming which are you know to be honest at risk and and it's a little bit nascent here the advocacy so we're starting to kick that up a little bit and i've been doing a little bit of education sessions so that's been kind of keeping me busier recently and it that was one of the things we wanted to cover, which was that Canada has turned unfavorable. And so let's get into that a little bit more. You sure. mentioned five provinces that have moratoriums um, or delays of, of some yes. or bans of some kind. And, and you see the market adjust, right? You see hash rate leave and you go to other parts of Canada, but also on the net, you see, you see hash rate leaving Canada, right? So where yeah which, yeah which provinces sure. are the ones that are maybe the biggest battles which ones are yes. the most pro and how, oh, and how yes, you, get yes and how are you helping that that arbitrage yeah so i think the one that really kills me is because i live here british columbia uh in december they basically said um you know there's a bitcoin mining ban for any miner that wants to get connected to the grid so if you're off the grid then you're still okay but if you want to connect to uh, the grid you have to wait two years they're going to kind of reassess and and bc hydro put out a report which frankly was extremely frustrating because it kind of 
was was both like echoing Digicon's kind of, uh, you know, oh, Bitcoin uses so much energy as much as a single country. And it's kind of like, wait, you know, the wasted kind of implication, but also saying that, you know, BC is trying to transition to an EV type of, you know, electric vehicles and electrification of everything. And, you know, Bitcoin mining is going to steal that energy. So they're concerned. And it also thinks it's going to raise electricity prices, which having worked for the Ministry of Energy for two years, you know, when I worked in the public sector, that's not how Canadian energy works. If you have loads that come online that can uh, pay for the infrastructure that's been built, because we have a great recovery system, that's how it works, is you you build the infrastructure and then the costs are recovered by from all the ratepayers. So it's just it seems to be very bad policy. And not only that, like they have concerns about BC's transition to a low carbon economy. Well, to be honest, like our grid is 98% renewable. So it's like, this is one of some of the most renewable miners out there. And we also have mining companies like Mint Green that are reducing GHG emissions for the city of Vancouver because they're fuel switching to traditionally, you know, homes and businesses are heated using um, fossil fuels like natural gas. Well, they're taking the waste heat from the miners, putting it into district heating so you're fuel switching from natural gas to the grid, which is 98% renewable. So it's like, no, we're actually, as a mining industry, you know, pretty neutral, if not helping reduce emissions. So that one, that one hit home. Um, other ones that are quite uh, negative is Quebec um, and uh, Newfoundland uh, Labrador have put in kind of, they, they used to have an allocation for Bitcoin miners that they were expecting to do. And now they're saying, no, we're pulling it back. Miners cannot connect. Uh, Saskatchewan has also put in a mining ban and Ontario was contemplating. Um, they have a demand response program called the industrial conservation program that they were specifically going to say miners are not allowed to participate. And that would increase mining um, like the energy prices quite significantly if you're not able to participate as a heavy industry. Um, Cause I actually used to work for that program. Um, but I think they kind of pulled back after a lot of industry back and forth, but still the point is they kind of looked at uh, this and said, Hmm, you know, let's, let's alienate this particular industry. And that's the part that really frustrates me because there's no other industry that's kind of been under this energy censorship, you know, specifically only Bitcoin mining that you can't connect to the grid. You, you know, you are banned from the grid and, and that's kind of a very anti-business stance. Um, and no other industry, like, like, like think about, you know, like gun manufacturing, like the vice kind of industries, right. Or tobacco or, drugs like they're not banned even though some people you know have issues with these industries and yet it's bitcoin mining that is kind of you know censored from an energy perspective which is what i find a little crazy actually considering all the potential you know good that it can do whether it's greenhouse gas reductions you know subsidizing infrastructure or just like looking at what bitcoin offers which is you know look at all of uh, alex gladstein's work around human rights preservation so it's it's very frustrating. <laughs> so which which province is the closest oh. to understanding? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So Alberta, which is Canada's Texas, <laughs> they are like they get it. They're contemplating putting in potentially even a, a special economic zone, but that's something that would take a really long time for policy wise. But they also they recently um, had a trade mission to Texas where they brought Canadian miners and other kind of blockchain companies 
to Texas to showcase what these companies do and vice versa. You know, they're trying to attract Texas companies to come and set up in Alberta. You know, we have good taxes there. Um, our banks aren't afraid of the Bitcoin industry, unlike in other places of Canada where they've shut them down. So so Alberta tends to be this this hub um, where, you know, politicians are part. Of, so I'm part of the Canadian Blockchain Consortium, which actually originated out of Alberta, used to be the Alberta Blockchain Consortium. So it's an industry group that's becoming industry trade association. So they even have some some of the um, senior government officials on their boards. Like it's quite heavily advanced. It's very similar to like how Texas is. So so I, I see the light there. And I mean, they've got the oil and gas industry too, right? Which has been struggling, but miners are setting up and helping with flare gas, right? So there's a lot in alignment there that I'm optimistic that at least one part of Canada is very favorable. <laughs> so that's very exciting. And what what kind of companies are showing you leadership out of out of Alberta and what what can we is the dynamic between provinces or between let's say Alberta and the federal government one that you take optimism from that it can spread outwards or is it maybe like in the United States where you view Texas as the pro bitcoin state and others might lag and the federal government won't come down hard enough to let there be some differences. Yeah. So I don't think the federal government has as much sway because the way that most of the regulations in Canada are set, like let's say energy regulations, they're at a um, state or provincial level. Same thing with, you know, climate tends to be under that jurisdiction. Um Securities laws, again, we're not, a, it's not federal SEC, it's every province has their own securities administrators and regulators. So more so it's the taxation kind of issue, which, which the feds have come down against. So that is a fight that we are taking on as a coalition. Um, but I think it's unfortunate. It does appear, though, that there is a partisan type and, and same thing in the U.S., where the Republicans tend to be a bit more favorable towards Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Same thing is happening here in Canada, where Trudeau, the current leader of Canada, is hitting back on his opposition, which is Pierre Polivier, who I'm sure some of you guys have seen through his tweets talking about sound money. So he, you know, at one point, you know, was, was talking about sound money and he mentioned Bitcoin and Trudeau has since then especially, you know, where the price is, where it is, it's fallen quite significantly from last year. He's basically saying, oh, well, Pierre Polivier wanted you to invest all your savings in Bitcoin and look at where you'd be in a bad place. He's very irresponsible, right? That's kind of his stance. It's one of his three talking points against his opponent for the next election. So it's unfortunate because the liberals seem to, which most province, like Canada tends to be a little bit more liberal, which is kind of like Democrat, most provinces, they do have currently, you know, liberal leaders like BC doesn't even have like conservatives. It's all like liberal parties. <laughs> it's kind of funny how, how that is. Like the West Coast is the most liberal or democratic. Um, but even Ontario, like so Ontario is conservative and they haven't like fully hit back on Bitcoin mining. But um, and I'm wondering whether there's a little bit of coordination maybe among the liberals to support Trudeau because, you know, as a liberal province, maybe you get more money from the federal government as well, right? Because you have good relationships. So I really don't like to see that partisanship. And it seems to be something that's recurring across the world. 
So thank you for the uh, the catch up here on the Canadian Bitcoin mining political scene. Uh, it's important to understand what the individual nations are facing with regard to this policy. So let's leave North America. We covered sure. Africa already. Let's go to a different continent. You pick it. What are you excited about Bitcoin mining? Um, you know, outside of the these two continents that we've covered already. Yeah. So, okay. Some, some cool projects that I'm seeing in both uh, Mexico and in Europe is there's, there seems to be a lot more permeation amongst farmers and agriculture of Bitcoin mining and kind of like collaboration where miners are taking, so they're setting up anaerobic digesters, which take all the waste from a farm. Uh, it creates methane and that methane in an anaerobic digester is, is, is generated and captured and can be used combusted to burn for energy to mine Bitcoin. And so a bunch of farmers, both in Mexico, which is biomining, and he's I know he's expanding to other parts of South America uh, or Central America, but as well in Europe, there's farmers that are subsidizing their agricultural operations by mining Bitcoin using the bio waste from their farms. And I think this kind of integration is really important, not from just like an understanding of Bitcoin and having it permeate, you know, throughout the... Um, uh, the economy, but also like if you look at it, uh, every government kind of sees farmers as a pretty strong voter base and they don't want to uh, anger them. So the more farmers we have that suddenly start to advocate for for Bitcoin and, and the Bitcoin mining industry, the more exciting I think it is to me. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have all seen the protests of farmers dumping tons of manure. It's happened in Canada. It's happened in Europe. And so imagine a, a time where they're advocating, you know, like, no, we want to keep mining Bitcoin because it's subsidizing our agriculture. <laughs> don't don't ban mining here. Right. Um, but they're also growing like using that heat and recycling it in Nordic countries and in Europe to grow vegetables. So I think those are kind of cool stories from around the world. Absolutely. And so you mentioned the Nordic countries that are, uh, recycling the heat to help grow vegetables. Um, it's something that can happen really in any part of the world that um, where where it's cold. So, you know, the Northern Hemisphere, we're, we're talking about, um, you mentioned the First Nations in Canada as well, that could be a potential. Yeah, they were looking at it. Yeah, and I really so, hope to see a project happen. <laughs> and so talk to us about the other countries in Europe that are using uh, farm or are that farmers are using uh, Bitcoin mining to help subs subsidize, which, which. Yeah. So I know in the UK, there's a few projects that are using both sheep and um, I believe pigs. Uh, I think cows are being used in Mexico, um, but also there's a project by Genesis in shoot. I can't remember if it was Norway or one of those like far North countries where they were using it, um, taking the heat as a pilot project to grow um, fruits and veggies. Yeah. And what type of advocacy groups are you a part of or that you support or that are, let's say, and you can even include companies themselves. Who are the voices here that yeah. are driving the narrative about Bitcoin mining being a net positive to the environment, being a contributor to ESG metrics for those yeah. companies that even are just interested in checking the boxes that they've done it, what where's the leadership coming from in your from your yeah. perspective? So in the U.S., I know um, Satoshi Action Fund, uh, which Dennis Porter has been doing quite a lot of good work 
on that. Um, I know Amanda Kavardi also has another group that's kind of similar that they've been they've been talking to a lot of politicians. Um, I, there's like the legacy kind of groups like the blockchain association that have done their part as well. I was part of, um, another group that kind of slowed down last year where we talked to the U S um, there was the OESP. It was like the science, I can't remember the white house report like we provided feedback on. So I think that the challenge that tends to be for any kind of industry association is funding, especially in a bear market. If, it's all volunteer, like folks have, a, you know, their own jobs. And unless they allocate resources like staff within a company of a Bitcoin mining uh, miner, or they donate money for an industry group to continue those sustained efforts, it's not going to happen. And that's kind of happened a lot across Canada traditionally, where, you know, we, there was an effort for X because it was like a reactive effort. And then after that, it kind of doesn't continue on an educational perspective. So I do think that like, I think, you know, especially the public miners, because there's so much, you know, billions of dollars of infrastructure at stake, they're starting to recognize they need to pay either within their shop, have these policy kind of government relations staff or pay for associations and, 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 and produce content. Cause there's also, it's not just, um, you know, industry advocacy and lobbying, there's also think tanks like the Bitcoin Policy Institute that does develop good resources, not just on, on Bitcoin mining, but just on Bitcoin period that do really good work that can then share those resources with policy staff. And I think it's so important that we do fund those. And it kind of tends to fall to the wayside, especially during a bear market where someone's like, well, I'd rather spend the money on business development in South America <laughs> than on policy work. And then suddenly a bad policy comes into play and they're like, oh, my God, what do I do? Right. Hire an expensive lobbyist. Well, it's kind of like a little too late. It's got it. You got to keep doing it. <laughs> well, we support the education effort. It, it policy is is part it's part education. And then it's the other part is the advocacy. So. You have to have the educational materials. It's something we yeah. definitely uh, in, endorse and embrace. We put out material that helps to describe Bitcoin in its entirety. And hopefully through all of that material, we can see that it's something that is not worthy of a ban and much more, uh, more so worthy of um, being allowed to exist. Talk to us about your ET the experience with the Canada ETF. What was that yeah. like? Um, if you could compare it to the situation we have in the United <laughs> States, um, we would appreciate your insight there too as well. So I think the situation is in the United States is start, starting to get to the same situation as in Canada. So um, 3IQ wanted to launch the first Bitcoin fund uh, and they thought, you know, everything would be great. And then the Securities Commission basically said, no, it's not in the public interest. You can't launch this prospectus. And they took them to court and it was a three-year battle um, with the Ontario Securities Commission advocating for the fund, providing all this evidence where it accumulated in a, um, in a hearing in front of, you know, the equivalent of a judge, a securities commissioner, um, that they won because they, they argued quite strongly that, yeah, it is in the public interest. Uh, and, you know, basically the OSC can't decide what people should invest in. It's really that whether the group that's bringing forward an investment is following the, the rules, like whether it's market integrity rules or just, you know, like they're not criminals, et cetera. 
as long as, you know, they're meeting all the requirements, um, it's okay. And so there was this 26 page ruling that came out of that, which was a blueprint for all the ETFs that followed in Canada. And we've got at least 10 now, um, Bitcoin plus there's also, you know, uh, Ethereum and other ETFs for other crypto assets, but that fight with the OSC really enabled Canada to have all these ETFs. And um, it was a really interesting process too, like undergoing through the IPO listing and going through all the different banks uh, and every office trying to kind of convince the investment advisors, I think in the US they're called RIAs, um, you know, just having those conversations. And of course you talk to the older generation and they're like, oh, this is a scam. And then you see all the young advisors and they're super interested. Some of them have it as well. So, so there, yeah, it was, it was of course like things that we know that young folks invest in, in crypto, but you could really see it there when you're talking to the different investment advisors. So it was a, it was a, it was a great experience. And honestly, you know, sometimes Canada falls on the policy, fails on the policy side, like we're not leaders, but in this case, we, we kind of are like, we, we have both, you know, the funds that are accessible for, for people, but also because of Quadriga really like the pendulum swung the other way and they created rules and guidelines for exchanges um, so we have like a little bit more certainty, unlike the U.S., about what exchanges are supposed to do to register. And a big part of that centers is centered around custody because Quadriga, he was embezzling money, right? He was taking client funds and trading it on, on foreign exchanges and he lost basically all of it. He took funds, 40 million, 30, sorry, like 10 million of it was, uh, you know, he bought homes and cars and like all sorts of things. That was totally embezzlement. At least we got it back because we sold all the assets, but you know, it's happening on FTX. So the central tenant around any kind of exchange is if you custody it, even if it's Bitcoin, it is a security and there's certain rules that exchanges have to follow, which will hopefully, you know, prevent another Quadriga or an FTX from happening in Canada if they want to operate in Canada. Do you, do you have any predictions about the U.S. ETF situation? I know we have Gensler in there and he's um, just it continues to just get dragged out. I don't think anybody has a decent explanation other than Gensler just holding it up. What are your thoughts about it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is a little bit surprising, especially since you have like the futures that are fine. Um, I think if it does go to that court battle, that could be the deciding factor. Let the courts decide. What I think I'm quite frustrated, uh, not just on the ETF side, is that the, how how they're dealing with by like it's regulation by enforcement where there's no certainty, and even companies that want to have you know the civil conversation turns out that it bites them in the butt in the end because they're actually accumulating evidence against the company, which makes you like why would any company want to go talk to the SEC, and why would any company want to set up in the states, uh, you know, seeing as what's happening? So it's just it's it's not great from. You know, when I worked in economic development, businesses like regulatory certainty, they want to know that they can operate there and not get shut down. Otherwise, why set up and maintain, you know, a business in this jurisdiction? So it's, yeah, it's we, disappointing. So we talked about some of the optimism on the Bitcoin mining side, some of the renewable side. Where is the optimism on the broader legislative side, maybe from the security perspective? You, you highlighted Canada that Canada got it right, where else are they getting it right? Or where else are they closest to getting it right that you see from across the world? 
I think um, the Asian countries in Dubai seems to have a pretty, pretty good um, handle on regulations. El Salvador is interesting too, because they're starting to put in securities laws. Like they're building the framework further around Bitcoin and other digital assets that they didn't have before. And they seem to be, you know, taking a thoughtful approach to it. They seem to understand a little bit more about how this world works. Whereas some of the countries, like, it's kind of like, like what, what just happened? I didn't understand this, like this thing that digital assets do was even a thing that exists. Like they're so behind. Um, so, so seeing countries that actually are willing to kind of scrap their laws and, and start over, like rather than trying to fit you know, digital assets specifically into the peg, like the square, you know, round, round hole, square peg kind of thing. Um, so I think places like that are pretty exciting. And uh, you mentioned Asia. So I, I know that South Korea has, has one of the more forward um, policies. I know that Japan was one of the first yes. to yes. have its because own. Because of desert- Mount Gox. Yes. <laughs> Right. So. Yeah, like so Mount Gox happened, Japan got their house in order. Quadriga happened, we got our house in order. Maybe FTX will get the US's house in order, right? It's kind of a shame that it takes a massive like uh scandal to for the government to finally realize. So we I I saw you cover that only 8% of the world's population is in a true democracy setting that 92% of the world is not. And so we know that there are opportunities for Bitcoin around the world, regardless of what the political scene is there. Um, I want to just, there are a few countries in Asia that we are starting to get more optimism around, uh, mainly the Philippines, Vietnam, and Thailand from an adoption perspective. What do you have any insights from those from from those three countries or anywhere so else? I know in Southeast Philippines Asia? has always been quite heavy in terms of remittances, so they understand the value of using an alternative currency versus like Western Union. Um, so I think you know I'm not surprised to see the uptake there. Um, Thailand, I have less knowledge of, but I like I'm I'm happy to hear. You know, as, as exciting as ETFs are in Canada or like mining being allowed or not allowed in Canada or the US, it's not as exciting as like, I really like, I know I have a bank account at the end of the day, right? But places where folks are sending money and losing, you know, a big chunk of it because they can't pass it on to their family because they have to work, you know, in another part and, and transmit it or places where you're completely unbanked or underbanked, like 2 billion people are unbanked and underbanked. Another 2 billion live under authoritarian governments around the world, right? And those are the people that, you know, really need Bitcoin. The folks in Africa that don't have electricity that, you know, Bitcoin can help support that infrastructure. Those are the ones that need it. So it's, you know, it's not as exciting, like it is exciting to get an ETF, but I'd much rather see increased adoption and whether it's just, maybe not even like using Bitcoin as savings, but using Bitcoin as a payment rail where you can transmit, you know, for example, USD, because at the end of the day, they, you know, they don't want to be in a place where there's double, triple digit inflation. They just want to have, you know, preserve whatever it is they have. And Bitcoin opens that world for them. So that's the stuff that excites me and why I want to keep working in this space. Excellent. You know, part of that big cog. <laughs> Well, we we're we're lucky to have you as part of this industry. Uh, your advocacy, your advocacy, and 
um, your energy around Bitcoin as a force for good. It's something that we believe in uh, as well. Mags Gronoska, thank you so much for joining us. Advisor at PRTI. Tell us and our audience where they can find you and the work that you're doing. Sure. Uh, well, most most commonly, I'm on Twitter, uh, crypto underscore mags. I am trying Noster. It's a little different. <laughs> and whatever, you know, LinkedIn, but uh, Magdalena Grunowska. But yeah, we're all, we're all on Twitter. <laughs> well, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Bitcoin layer, covering Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.